0: Wednesday night, we're starting a new book. Actually, we're starting a new book right now, the book of Hosea. Um, But before you turn to Hosea, grab your Bible and turn to the book of Joshua because we have some prep work to do before we crack open the book of Hosea. So Joshua, turn to Joshua chapter seven. What does God look like? You know, it's funny how the Bible doesn't really tell us much about his appearance in a lot of ways when you think about it, just that he's very bright And light and um, the descriptions are fairly limited really Um, and even you know we know that no man can see God and live so that's part of the problem Um, but even in the Bible where there's people that got some kind of a vision or a snapshot or something of God's visible uh, presence um, every single time we see those people fall flat on their face before the Lord. Like uh, remember, um, you know, uh, what was it, Uh, Nadab and Abihu and the elders of Israel there in the book of Exodus, they were going up Mount Sinai to meet the Lord. And it says, they saw the God of Israel. Now what that means, I have no idea, um, but uh, it was enough to make them all freak out. And they all fell flat on their face and they described the ground. That's all you get. You know, the Lord was, no, the ground was, uh, it's funny, even in the heavenly scene, they, they see the throne of God and everybody falls down and says, and the floor was of jasper stone You know, like, like it only talks about the floor. Lemony fresh, you know. It's like they're sniffing the floor. Why? Well, you know, some, some arrogant people think they're going to get to heaven and when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God a thing or two. No, you're not. When you get to heaven, you're going to wet your pants and you're going to be flat on your face. And maybe if you're bold enough, you might stand up and say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Nobody's gonna be giving a piece of their mind to God when they get in heaven. Um, What does God look like? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing, but the Bible does spend more time talking about um, what God God feels and how he thinks. We almost know more about the inner part of God than the exterior physical, you know, look of God. The Bible takes great care to show us that, and we have in a book here with Hosea uh, a book that will tell us the heart of a loving God, and it's going to be first heartbreaking, but then it's going to be heartwarming, and we're going to see that here in Hosea. There once was a little four-year-old boy. He was, in, you know, intently coloring a picture. What are you drawing? His dad asked. And The little boy, without even looking up, he says, "I'm drawing God." And the father said, "Your know, son, no one in the whole world knows what God looks like." And still, you know, without looking up the little boy writing, he says, well, they're about to in a couple of minutes. <laughs> he, he thought he was going to be able to draw God. But as it turns out, Hosea paints a picture for us, the book of Hosea, uh, of just this loving, redemptive God. And, and, and I hope we can see this amazing picture as we study the book of Hosea. Um, you know, it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, as it turns out, although we, you know, have this book of Hosea to, to learn about God, we, we're we going to learn how deeply God feels when we sin against him. When we walk away from him or backslide away from him, as, as we say in Christian ease, you know, backslide means to walk away from the Lord. Um, what, is, what does that do to the Lord? And, and when we turn and, and sin against him, you know, how's that going to be uh, shown? The, the, the prophet Hosea is going to be given a task. You know, these Old Testament prophets, they sure had challenging tasks. Um, you know, Isaiah had to walk around naked for a year and people were like, uh, Isaiah, where's your clothes? Even as I am naked before you, you are naked before God. Like that's, that, was, that was a tough day at the office, if you ask me, for poor Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet. But Hosea gets kind of a comparable challenge when the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to go downtown where all the prostitutes are, and I want you to choose one of the prostitutes for a wife. And Hosea's gonna go down and pick a, a prostitute, her name, Gomer. Later, she was on the Andy Griffith show. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, no, a different, different Gomer. But that was her name, Gomer. And, and, and they're married and things start out great. You know, they're married and Gomer has, you know, three children and there they seem to be a happy family. Right up until Gomer goes back out and becomes a prostitute again. Sleeping around town, sleeping with men that are not her husband. And it was in front of the face of all of Israel. Israel saying, hey, isn't that prostitute Hosea, the prophet's wife? And she's living with those guys now and she's sleeping over here. And and Hosea had to sort of see the shame of it all. And it was painful for him. And the story is gonna go where he will take her back. Even though she's prostituted herself, he'll take her back again and again. But then she'd go back out to sin against her husband and sin against the Lord. But the Lord would say, Hosea, this is gonna be an illustration. An illustration of what? Well, as it turns out, in the Old Testament, the Jews, the children of Israel are compared to, or uh, sort of a picture of the wife of God, of Jehovah. Now you guys know if you've been reading your Bible in the New Testament church, we're not the wife of God. We're called the bride of Christ. It's a little different delineation for the, the New Testament church. But the Old Testament Jews were called the wife of God. And so Hosea is being pictured as God, whereas Gomer the prostitute is the picture of Israel. And, and this idea of her leaving and prostituting is like when Israel went away to other gods and worshiped Baal and Chemosh and Moloch and all these other pagan deities. And the Lord saying, you have committed adultery, Israel. You've, you've harloted yourself, prostituted yourself against me. And by the way, this, you know, Hosea is not the only guy. It was talked about like this sort of messaging all throughout the Old Testament. It was Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter three, verse 14, where he says there, he says, "'Turn, O backsliding children of Israel, saith the Lord, "'for I, I am married unto you, "'and I will take you, one of a city, two of a family, "'and I will bring you to Zion.'" Jeremiah's talking about backsliding Israel, and he said, you know, the Lord says, "'I'm married to you, you're the, you're the wife of God, if, if you would.'" That's the kind of love God has for his people, but his people had sort of prostituted themselves. So not only would Hosea's marriage be an illustration of the people prostituting, but it would also provide Hosea himself with a sense of how God feels when people sin against him and go contrary to him. It's the hurt that Hosea is gonna feel is sort of a picture of the hurt that God feels. What an amazing thing that the Lord actually goes through kind of a suffering. Here's the omnipotent God of the universe, all powerful, all knowing, all present, and yet he still has this sense of of wounding and hurt that's involved when we as people rebel against him. Paul the apostle um, talked about this and called it the fellowship of suffering. There in Philippians chapter three, verse 10, he says, that I may know him, that is the Lord, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. So it's not really uh, surprising that you see God saying, I want Hosea, you to know how I feel when Israel you know, goes and worships these other gods. But see, today you say, okay, Brett, that's great. What does that have to do with Hosea and Joshua 7? And what's the deal? Well, as it turns out in Joshua 7, we begin a discussion that will will end in Hosea. Why don't you turn to Joshua chapter 7? And uh, the story is such, uh, many of you know this story. It's kind of a classic. Uh, You know, the children of Israel had crossed over the Jordan River. They came to their first big obstacle, the city of Jericho. And, um, and as it turns out, um, it seemed like it was impossible to conquer, but the Lord says, Joshua, wherever you put the sole of your foot, I'm going to give you victory. And so Joshua seeks the Lord and the Lord gives him the plan of attack. So Joshua comes out to his generals and all his people and he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Like, okay, yeah, what, what are we going to do? Okay. We're going to, we're going to get the ram's horns, the shofars. And we're going to get the Ark of the Covenant. And we're going to get all the people. And we're going to have the, the priest with the shofars walking ahead with the Ark of the Covenant. And then we're going, to, we're going to walk around the city of Jericho one time. Great. little intimidation. Sounds good. And then the second day, we'll do the same thing. And we'll do that for six days in a row. Okay. What's next? When do we get to shoot people? Uh, well, not yet. You're gonna walk around once for every for six days. On the seventh day, Joshua explained, we're gonna walk around seven times. a Little cardio before the battle. Okay, got it. Then what? Well, then the priests are gonna take those shofars, those those ram's horns, and blow them. They're like, okay, shofar, so good. Uh, sorry. Um, and 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 then after the shofar is blown. And the priests do that. Then you guys, all the people will yell out with a loud shout. "Ah!" And it'll be crazy loud and awesome. Okay, then what? That's it. That's our plan. Can you imagine if you're one of the people of Israel and you're going into this battle with this huge city and that's your plan? You'd be like, oh boy, I don't know. But if you know the story... Uh, maybe you sung the song when you were a kid, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. You know that when they yelled out that, that big shout after the blowing of the shofar, that the walls of Jericho crumbled. By the way, you can look this up, but um, Nelson Gluick was a kind of a famous secular um, archaeological uh, expert and, and dug these areas of Jericho. You can go see the ancient walls of Jericho down, you have to look way down into a pit, because of the uh, many stratas of time that have gone by. But, but um, Nelson Glueck wrote in his writings about finding these walls. He says, it's almost as if an invisible hand pushed the walls from the inside out when they went down. I think that's great. If you look at ancient walls that were you know, crushed in battle, they always were pushed from the outside in, but not so with Jericho. And that's because God pushed over the walls of Jericho and the, the children of Israel went in and all they had to do is, you know, wipe out the people and the inhabitants of, as, of Jericho and, and burn it all up and destroy it. But one of the things the Lord said in chapter six, verse 18, the Lord said, and by the way, don't let anybody take of any of the spoil of Jericho. We'll, uh, we'll call that the accursed thing. It's, it's an accursed thing to take the, the, anything of the booty or the spoil of Jericho. So you gotta leave it, burn it, get rid of it. And so the story goes where the children did all of that, children of Israel, but there was a problem. There was trouble in the camp, literally trouble. There was a guy named Trouble. <laughs> Can you imagine having the name Trouble? His name, we know him as Achan. In the Hebrew, his name is Trouble. Like if you say, that's Trouble, in Hebrew, you'd say, that's Achan, Trouble. So Mr. Trouble, what does he do? Well, he's there cleaning up in battle like they were supposed to. And then he sees some fancy threads, some Babylonian garments. And he says, woo, fancy clothes. And he sees a wedge of gold and some silver shekels and he stashes them away and he takes them and hides them. And then when he gets home, he digs a hole under his tent and sticks it all under his tent and hides it away. He took of the accursed thing. The very thing God said, whatever you do, don't do that. But Mr. Trouble did it. Do you know people that are just kind of (laughs) trouble? Some of you are wired that way. You're just trouble. We're all kind of trouble to some degree, some more than others. I remember as an old children's pastor, Tad and I, we were taking a bunch of kids, you know, summer camps and stuff. We did this for a long time. But, but there was this one mother that came and said, Pastor Brett, would you please take my son? And I'm like, well, sure, why are you asking like that? Well, he's been kicked out of everything. Uh, Johnny got kicked out of the Boy Scouts, kicked out of all the churches in town, kicked out of his school, kicked out of art class, kicked out of, and, it, and it, there was nothing left for Johnny. So she said, Brett, you're our last hope. Well, I, I, I talked with her and I got to know Johnny a little bit and I realized, yeah, this is gonna be a tall order because Johnny was trouble. Um, you shouldn't say that about children. No, I say it boldly and gladly, he, he was trouble. Um, <laughs> let me give it a, by the way, I made a deal with the mom. I said, I'll tell you what, now I, I could do this back in those days. Today, if you did what I did, you'd probably get arrested. Um, but I made an agreement, mom, if you allow me to disciple him and mentor him and even discipline him if need be, then I'll take him on whatever trip he wants to go on. And it was kind of a crazy story because uh, like, let me give you one example. We went on this hiking trip one day with hundred kids, fifth and sixth grade kids, and we were hiking through the woods in Southern Oregon. And then we would hike down to the Applegate Lake where we'd swim in the swimming area. It was a great little day of fun summer stuff. But at the beginning of the hike, I said, hey, you guys, um, watch out. There's, there's poison oak on the sides of the trails. And I showed them what poison oak was. And they all said, okay. Well, I'm walking down the hiking trails and I hear girls screaming in horror. What happened? Well, I assigned this big buff counselor to stay with Johnny all the time. But as I ran back there, I saw the big buff counselor chasing Johnny around, but Johnny was too quick for the counselor. And he was running around, and what he had done is he had bailed up some wads of poison oak in his hands, and he was running around rubbing it in little girls' faces. True story. uh, so, I got back there, dealt with that situation, uh, but that was only nine a m when that happened. <laughs> True story: the same day we were finally at the swimming hole there, and I defined where the kids could swim, and, and we had an area, and I was actually a certified lifeguard, if you could believe that um, and, um, and I was there watching the kids with my little you know lifeguard buoy, and I was watching, but they were all there, and I had the, the big buff counselor assigned to Johnny there swimming with them, just making sure he didn 't do anything mean to kids well. Um, Suddenly I hear this woman, who's not part of our group, screaming. And she's way out in the middle of the lake um, with her her little inflatable Tahiti. Remember those inflatable Tahiti's, kind of inflatable kayaks? She was out there taking in some sun, just her and her one-year-old baby floating in this little Tahiti. Well, Johnny was amazing. He could hold his breath for large, long periods of time. And he left his buff counselor and swam underwater a great distance without being detected and swam out to this woman in the kayak and thought it'd be hilarious to turn her and her baby over. And so she flipped, uh, he flipped her kayak. Well, I'm the lifeguard hearing this woman screaming in horror and I look and I see her and I see this little baby bobbing uh, out in the, in the water. And so it went into action Brett, the lifeguard, to, you know, hazel off moment, um, <laughs> and I dove in and, and and I went out there and I got the, the you know the, the the baby first and then the woman and got the, the kayak all back and, and she was furious and I thought what happened I didn't know until out popped of the water with a shiny little laughter face Johnny <laughs> he was laughing because he's the one who turned it over turned her over. And she was saying, I'm going to sue you. And she was yelling and cussing and all upset. Well, I took Johnny out of the water that day, lovingly, firmly, calmly. And I took him up to a picnic bench. And I'm not gonna go into the gory details, but I'm just gonna tell you, I disciplined him right there uh, very firmly. Again, you'd be taken to jail for that today. But as it turned out, this is amazing. This is a true story. Because I did that, and the woman saw it, she walked through, you know, I was gonna sue you guys, but because you, you did that, I, I feel like we're good, and now you handled that rightly. <laughs> I was like, phew, I almost lost my job there. Um, tricky times with Johnny, who's trouble. Now, by the way, we were successful with Johnny. I went through some other things, got smashed in the head with a golf club once, but that's a whole other story. Um, but Johnny became quite an amazing guy, and now he's a pilot of a major airline. I won't tell you which one, but I'm sure he's flown some of you. (laughs) He's he's probably flown some of you around the country, uh, which is pretty funny to me. Good luck. (laughs) Well, Aiken, his name is Aiken, and he is Trouble, Mr. Trouble. If you could picture that, that's what Aiken is, and the Bible spends a lot of time talking about that part of it. Well, Achan took of the accursed thing, just like you're not supposed to do. He took the garments and the gold and the silver, hid it under his tent. And so the next thing to do with the children of Israel, we're gonna go fight a little town called Ai. Uh, you gotta understand, this is a no big deal city. You know, they just conquered Jericho, one of the most powerful, massive walled cities in all of the land of Canaan. Ai, it'd be like if you conquered Portland, the next day you have to take on Dundee. Same difference And so they take on Ai, and the Jews are brutally conquered and beaten back. 36 of their men were slaughtered on the field of battle by the men of Ai. And Joshua and the people say, Lord, you told us we'd have victory. What's going on? And the Lord said, somebody in your camp has taken of the accursed thing. And I want you to gather up all the children of Israel, and I'll, I'll direct you, Josh, to find out who it was. So Joshua calls all the children of Israel together, the 12 tribes, and they're all there, you know, probably over a million people, depending on which group of people were all together. But if it was all the the men of Israel, it was probably close to a million people. And Joshua says, if you're of the tribe of Judah, stay here, everybody else can go home. Guess who was in the tribe of Judah, Achan. I wonder if Achan sat in the crowd thinking, there's no way he's gonna figure it out. I'm safe, even though, oh, lucky guess, one out of 12, he got the tribe of Judah. But then he said, if you are in the tribe of Judah, but you're of the family of the Zerites. Uh Many generations earlier, there was a, a guy named Zerah that was, uh, became a father of a section, a kind of a clan of the, of the tribe of Judah. Well, guess what? Achan was part of that clan. And then he said, if you're the son of Zabdi, uh-oh, this is like Achan's grandfather. And then he said, if you're of the son of Carmi, ooh, now we're dialing it right in, Zabdi, Zerah, Carmi and finally it's just Achan standing there left out of all the crowd and Joshua says to Achan what is it you've done to us? You're trouble. You have troubled Israel and you have taken of the accursed thing. What do you have to say for yourself? Well that's where we pick it up in Joshua chapter 7 verse 20. Let's take a look and see Achan's answer. It says in Joshua chapter 7 verse 20 And Achan answered Joshua and said, "'Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, "'and thus and thus have I done. "'And when I saw the spoils of a goodly Babylonian garment "'and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold "'of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them and took them, "'and behold, they are hid in the earth "'in the midst of my tent and the silver under it.'" Now pause there just for a second. He confesses what he did. And, and by the way, this, this is a, a pattern of sin that you and I engage in. First, he saw. That's not where the sin happened. When he saw it, that was not sin. But it's what he did next. He coveted, did you see that? I saw the Babylonian garment, the silver and the gold, and I coveted it. That's where the sin started. Then he took it to the next level. Then he took it, and then next level still, he hid it. Trying to cover up and hide his sin, never pays off. Don't forget, Achan's gonna be the poster boy for you this. You always get nailed by sin. Or as the Bible puts it in Numbers 32, 23, be sure of this, your sin will find you out. And here's Joshua saying, what have you done? He says, okay, I did all this. And so what did the people do? Well, verse 22, so Joshua sent messengers and they ran unto the tent. And behold, it was hid in his tent, the silver under it. And they took them, all these things, took them out of the midst of the tent and brought them to Joshua and unto the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Have you ever been caught in your sin only to have your sins laid out before everyone to see? That's the way sin goes. You think you're doing something in secret, pulling it off, getting away with it. But now, how dumb does Achan feel as he's standing there? There's 36 men that were slaughtered because of him. And it's because of these stupid little trinkets that he took, some gold, some silver, and some, some styling threads from Babylon. And now they're all laid out on the ground before the Lord. And Achan's is just standing there going, yeah, those are the things I took. Stupid. Sometimes we find ourselves in that situation when we get caught in our sin or, or found out, we realize what an idiot we've been. And that's right where the devil wants you. Well, anyway, Satan will accuse you because you're guilty. That's Achan. So verse 24, Joshua and all of Israel with them took Achan, the son of Zerah and the silver and the garment and the wedge of gold and his sons and his daughters and his oxen and his asses and his sheep and his tent and all that he had and they brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why hast thou troubled us? The Lord shall trouble thee this day. Now pause, this is Joshua doing a play on words. He's like, why have you achan us, Achan? You're gonna Achan, Achan. Like he's he's seriously saying that. You have to go to the Hebrew to see this. But Joshua said, you're Mr. Trouble and you're about to be troubled yourself. Um, And all of Israel stoned him with stones and burned them with fire. And after they had stoned him with stones and they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor even to this day. Now, I remember when I was reading this as a kid, I always think, why would, why were the kids burned? Why did Achan's family get burned? Well, I'd like to say, I'm not really sure the Lord actually commanded for that to happen. If you go back to chapter seven, verse 15, it says, it shall be that is taken of the accursed thing will be burnt with fire, he and all that he hath, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, because he hath wrought folly in Israel. I don't know if you could call his kids his possessions, but the question is, why did they destroy everything? Well, this is the thing about sin. I think this is an amazing picture in the Old Testament that, that, that you and I have to acknowledge. Cause see, I know people say, Brett, I'm gonna keep sinning. I don't care what you say, pastor. Hey, it's my own life. I can do with it whatever I want. But here's the problem with sin. And you'll find this out just like old Achan, that your sin often affects the people you love the most. When you engage in sinful stuff, you think you're pulling it off, but it's gonna hurt your wife. It's gonna hurt your kids and your family. And and, and man, there's many a people who've had to learn this lesson the hard way. Better to learn from Achan before you do it yourself. But this is a horrible thing. So they take all of Achan, his family, his stuff, his animals and everything, and. They stone them with stones and then burn them all with fire. And all that's left there in the middle of the valley of Achan, well, is just a pile of burnt ash. Isn't that something, verse 26? They raised over a heap of stones. The Lord turned his fierceness away, just like the woman on the lake. She turned her fierceness away when she saw that I dealt properly with Johnny. Same, the Lord turns his wrath away um, and so they named the place of that valley called the Valley of Achor, which is another way of saying uh, trouble. It's like the Valley of Achan, even to this day it says. So, so what an amazing thing. Now this is a bleak and dark and, and really sad story. But What I wanna do is show you that in the, in the rest of the Bible, what, what happens at this place of the Valley of Achan? It doesn't go away, but it comes back, this valley. Um, And it's a horrible place, a place to remember this horrible story of sin and the repercussions of sin and what it does to you when you sin, you you end up messing yourself up, ruining your life and the people that you love. That's the deal. Now we fast forward back to the book of Hosea. Now turn to the book of Hosea. Our text this, this afternoon will be Hosea chapter two. If you'd flip over there. And here in Hosea chapter two, what we see as we see, um, you know, this prostitute, Gomer. She's out sleeping with other men and doing her thing. And poor Hosea's the husband that's been, you know, cheated on. But what we're about to read here is where the Lord says, I still care about Gomer, even as Hosea still cares for Gomer. Um, but she doesn't deserve love or kindness because she's the one who's wronged everyone. But the Lord says these words that I find very important. Hosea chapter two, verse 14. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. What's going on here? Man, the the word here is just amazing. The Lord says, I want to... Now, the word allure here, you have to almost uh, use a different word because in modern English, the word allure has a little bit of a negative connotation. In this context, the original Hebrew language, it's nothing but... Um, it's, you'd almost call it like a a compassionate wooing of her back to himself. It's not a like alluring, like trying to trick her or anything like that. It's actually, you know, to to woo her back from where? From her prostitution, back to be Hosea's husband and wife, um, to, to be married again. So that's the first thing. The Lord says, I want to allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Well, that sounds bad. What is she, Nacho Libre? Out in the wilderness? What's going on with that? Well, you have to understand, the, the place of prostitution was the city. And, and the Lord is saying, I want to bring her out of that place of sin, out to where she can take another you know, look at things and get a fresh perspective. So he, he wants to allure her and bring her out in the wilderness and then speak comfortably under her. We'll talk about what that means in a second. And, and then the Lord says, I'll bring her to the Valley of Achor, which is a place of utter ruin, a place of trouble. That's where she finds herself. You know, this woman, Gomer, she finds herself in a place of trouble because of her own sinfulness. But the Lord says, I will, I will bring her to the Valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall, shall sing there. What's this all about? Well, this is what the Lord wants to do, not only to Israel, the Jews, He wants to bring her back out of her sinful debauchery, Hosea and Gomer, but he also wants to do that with us. What does that look like? Well, it looks like this. Number one, if three things, if you're jotting them down, number one, restored blessings, restored blessings. Um, What does he wanna do? He wants to take and restore the things that have been ripped off. When you and I sin, man, the devil wants to rob you and rip you off. He promises big, but delivers little. Um, We see this sort of illustrated. The Lord says here, if you read in verse 15, I will give her vineyards from thence. Look what she was saying earlier in, in verse 12, back up to verse 12. It says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she hath said, these are my rewards that my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them, huh? Gomer thought that all of her lovers, all the men that she would go and sleep with around town were gonna somehow provide sustenance and wealth, that she would get a vine and a fig tree from these guys. And the Lord's saying, no, your vine and your fig tree from your lovers, they're gonna be eaten by the beast. It's gonna be emptiness. You're gonna be lacking. But the Lord says, but I wanna restore to you the true vineyard. So, so while you're getting ripped off by your own sinfulness, he says, I want to plant for you and give you, verse 15, I will give her vineyards from thence and the Valley of Trouble, Achor, for a door of hope. I love that, restored blessing. The Lord wanted to not only do this for Gomer, he wanted to do this for Israel. Israel sinned against the Lord and adulterated their relationship and, and they ended up being messed up and tossed out But the Lord says, man, I will bring you back and I will bless you. The very thing you're longing for, the thing you think that your sinful stuff is gonna get you pleasure or happiness or sustenance, they're not gonna serve that, but I will bless you. I will restore blessing. It really reminds me of what prophet Joel says. Do you remember what Joel said? He said, I will restore unto you the years the what? Locusts have eaten. Locusts in the Bible are kind of a type of, you know, demonic, powerful entities that are eating up everything that's fruitful in your life. A, a swarm of locusts would go through that region of the world and wipe everything out. And that's what happens when we sin. It wipes our own lives out. And we end up in, in trouble in the Valley of Achor and the locusts have eaten it all up. The Lord says, I will restore unto you the years the locusts have eaten. And here the Lord says, you want your little vine and your little fig tree from the world? It's not gonna happen but I will give to you a vineyard. You know what I love about the vineyard is, um, a vineyard, by the way, was a luxury item. Um, It was not something that just anybody had. A vineyard is something that was kind of over the top blessing. Um, He didn't say, I will give you bread and water to sustain life, or I'll give you a bologna sandwich. Didn't say that. He said, I will give you a vineyard. That's the Lord being gracious. Uh, mercy is to forgive. Gracious is giving someone something they don't deserve over and beyond blessing. The Lord says to, about Gomer and about Israel, I'll not only take care of you, I will give you a vineyard, restored blessing. I love that. Um, by the way, this, um, if you read this verse 14 in the English Standard Version, it says, there, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly unto her. That's when the the King James says, you know, speak comfortably under her. That's the idea is speaking tenderly. He goes to Gomer and doesn't scream at her. He doesn't, you know, yell at her or or bark at her or any of that. He just says, I will speak tenderly, but I will allure. And again, you know, wooing back to himself lovingly, tenderly is the idea here. And the Lord says, and I wanna bless you. By the way, on this, this word allure, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon there in the 1800s he was called the Prince of Preachers because he was a great preacher from the 1800s in London but he did a whole sermon on these two words allure her and uh, it's pretty powerful but let me read you a little snippet of his sermon from the 1800s he said this is a singular kind of power I will allure her not I will drive her not I will draw her not I will drag her or I will force her. No, I will allure her. It is a very remarkable word and it teaches us that the allurement of love surpasses in power all other forces. That's how the devil ruins us. He tempts us with honeyed words, sweet utterances with the baits of pleasure and the like. And the Lord in mercy determines that in all truthfulness, he will outbid the devil and he will win us to himself, which shall be a stronger force of resistance we may offer. This is a wonderfully precious word. I will allure her. And I see that true. I I think he's right that the Lord would say to this grotesque woman who's horrible to her husband and she's prostituting herself. Most people say, what a loser. But the Lord says, I will allure her. That's you and me. We're the prostitute in the story. It's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it, but we're the ones who are being pictured here when we walk away from the Lord and when we sin against the Lord and the Lord says, I will speak tenderly and I'll try to draw you to myself out of your sin. And that's what it means, restored blessing. But that brings us to the second thing, revived hopes. Revived hopes. You know, it's interesting, the older we get and the more life we live, have you ever noticed how your hope diminishes sometimes? When you're a little kid, you hope that no cell phones go off in church. I mean, sorry. Um, When you're a little kid, you have hopes that good things will happen and that your life will amount to something of great sustenance and blessing. But the older you get, you know, your dreams are never fully realized and, and you're no longer singing the happy little tune that you once sang and you're bummed out. And, and hope starts to be deferred, and, and we start finding ourselves sort of hopeless. Even though we technically have the hope of heaven and we know that, but you know, that's one of the problems. She finds herself because of her sin in the valley of trouble. Uh, that's hopeless. The story of Achan, that's hopeless. The valley of Achan, hopeless. But the Lord says here in our text, He says, I will give her vineyards from thence and, and a valley, the valley of Achor... Now I have trouble for a door of hope. In other words, right in the midst of your trouble, I'll crack open the door of hope. This is what the Lord does. Man, that's what happens when we get ourselves caught up in sin or when we're even tempted to sin. The Lord says, I will provide the way of escape, the door of hope to get out of that. And we're gonna find in the story of Hosea that Gomer's gonna get many times to repent of her sins and do the right thing. But sadly, she's not gonna do that very often. She's gonna continue to go back to trouble, the Valley of Trouble. But I love how suddenly we see from the story of Joshua 7, this horrible Valley of Acre, a Valley of Trouble. And in this passage, we start to see the Lord say, you're in that Valley of Trouble, guess what I'll do? I'll give you a door of hope in the midst of the Valley of Trouble. This isn't the first time the Valley of Achan is turned around for something good. We also see it in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 10. It says, and Sharon shall be a fold of flocks and the Valley of Acor, a place for the herds to lie down in for my people that have sought me. The Lord is saying, I will use the Valley of Trouble for a place to have sheep lie down. Speaking of the flock of Israel, question for you shepherd types, what does a sheep need to lie down? You know, sheep are freaked out little critters. They get skittish and scared and it takes a lot for a sheep to get to a place where it's truly just lying down. It takes three main things, food, water, and safety. Philip Keller's book, um, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23 is a great book. If you're interested, he he writes about this. But the idea of the sheep lying down, even the shepherd's Psalm 23, you know, what, what happens there? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down. That's what the Lord does. He, that, for a sheep to lie down, what does he need? Well, as it turns out, still waters, green pastures. And also the, the shepherd's psalm says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Why, why would a sheep or a lamb be comforted by the rod and the staff of the shepherd? The wolves. And the sheep will lie down because they're not afraid of the wolves because the shepherd's there with his rod and his staff that brings comfort. So here in that kind of imagery, the Lord says, you're the sheep and you're skittish, but I will feed you and I'll water you, but I'll also protect you and you'll lie down in the valley of trouble. When you find yourself in the valley of Acre, I will find a place where herds will lie down. This is what the Lord does. I love that the Lord is able to revive our hopes and bring about peace to the sinner who's blown it royally and finds himself in the valley of trouble. The Lord says, I can deal with that. Well, how bad do you have to be? Like can the Lord take us, even if we're sinners like Gomer, the prostitute? That's what I love about the Bible is it gives us these illustrations that are pretty over the top. But see, it doesn't just end there with the door of hope in the Valley of Acre, but also in the Valley of Acre, we see her singing new songs. That's number three, and our final point, renewed songs. It says in our text that she'll be there in the Valley of Acre for a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth. Don't you love how little kids just go around singing? They're sort of unafraid. Um, The older you get, sometimes you get more bashful about singing and stuff like that. Um, I think that's how I became bold in singing. Uh, I have a a marginally bad voice, but I use it. I croak out as much as I can with it. Um, You know, what's funny though, is I learned that because I started leading worship when I was like 10. So I had no sense of embarrassment. That's good. Some of you older people will never sing in front of people because you're too prideful now. Uh, Some of us got past that when we were 10 years old. So we sing. Kids, I love kids that run and sing, but the problem is as as you get older and you end up in sin and you end up in the Valley of Acre, you're not singing the happy little tunes that you once sang. In the story of Chippy, the little parakeet, a woman got this little parakeet and she loved it because it sang a happy little tune there in the pet store. And as the little bird would chirp, she thought, oh, I want that. So she brought it home and it was Chippy was really known throughout the store as the most musical little bird. But she didn't know how to clean out the little cage and it came time to clean. So she thought, I'll get the shop back. So she went out and got the shop back. Oops, Chippy moved and the vacuum slipped and up the tube went Chippy. And, and so she got quickly into the vacuum and found Chippy kind of gyrating in the, in the dust there of the vac. And so she runs over to the sink and takes the bird and runs scalding water on top of it, trying to get it quickly, you know, and ah, and then she gets a blow dryer and blow dries it. And then she kind of puts it back in the cage. And, 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 and the story goes where Chippy just stared off into space <laughs> and never sang a song ever again. <laughs> some of you are like Chippy. You've been through some life. And when you were a child, oh, you sang happy little songs and you had optimism and you looked at, but then as people have wronged you and churches have treated you badly or people have done this or that or the other thing and you're bitter and upset, you're no longer singing a happy little tune. But that's what this picture is. Here's this Gomer the prostitute is really in a bad place. And the Lord says, I will bring you to the valley of trouble where I'll give you the door of hope and you'll sing a new song. You'll sing the songs like you did when you first got out of Egypt. What's that? He's talking about Israel. Now, Israel, when they left Egypt, they were out of slavery. They were saved from Pharaoh's hand. And that's when Moses and the children of Israel, remember after the Red Sea incident, they sang a happy tune. Well, the same thing happens to the person who goes to the Lord and returns from their backsliding and goes through the door of hope. Even though they're in the valley of trouble, the Lord says, I will give you a new song. The psalmist talked about this in several places, and and you should make note note of these. I love Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. Thou hast turned for me my mourning into dancing. Thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to thee and not be silent, O Lord my God. I will give thanks unto thee forever. Don't you love that? The Lord says, I will turn your mourning into dancing. Your sackcloth, which was like gunny sack, scratchy material, the, the, the Jews would put that on when they were mourning and in total sorrow. He says, I'll, I'll take off that sackcloth and I'll put, put on gladness. That's what the Lord wants to do. Even though we messed everything up with our sinful behavior, the Lord says, I will turn these things around. Um, David, the psalmist, wrote this about his own sinfulness. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. And he hath put a new song in my mouth, even praise unto our God, many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Man, I love this Psalm because some of you and and some of us, we've messed up our lives when we find ourselves in the pit, the horrible pit, stuck in the miry clay, but the Lord says he'll pull me out of that and set my feet upon a rock and establish my goings. This is what the Lord wants to do for Gomer, the prostitute. Now what's even more troublesome, as we shall see in the story of Hosea, is Gomer's going to just keep prostituting. Hosea is gonna give her chance after chance to come back, but she's just gonna keep doing it. And, and she keeps going around the city and Hosea is ashamed and heartbroken. And the Jews are all seeing this happen openly in front of all of Israel. And finally, we're gonna see Gomer in a place where she's getting older and uglier and messed up and nobody wants her anymore. She can't even sell her own body. She's, she's in total debt and despair. And, and like in those days, what they did to the debtor, the person that was unable to provide for themselves, they would sell them on the slave market. So the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to go to town. And Hosea comes in and there at the slave auction in the center of town, he sees his wife, Gomer the prostitute, who now can't even sell her own body. She's, she's all messed up and, and she's being sold in chains, probably naked. They're in chains standing in front of the town being sold as a slave. And the Lord says, Hosea, I want you to take out your 15 pieces of silver and your bushels of barley. Um, and by the way, interesting, we'll find out that when you do the math on that, the 15 pieces of silver and the, the, the barley is also equal to about 15 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver altogether, kind of interesting little number for you Bible students. Um, he purchases Gomer back. He buys his own wife off the slave market. And we're gonna see what happens when she comes back and how she'll be received by, by Hosea the prophet. And the Lord makes Hosea do that because he wants to show Israel his heart for the Jews who were sinful and ridiculous, washed up, has-been, idol-worshiping pagans. And the Lord says, yeah, but I still love them so much that I will, and here's the doctrinal word you should know, redeem, redemption, I'll pay the price to get you out of the slavery of your sin. And that's what this whole book is about. It's a powerful allegory or story of what God wants to do, not only for the Jews, yes, for Israel, and he will do that, and he has done that, but also for you and me. We were bought with a price. We were the prostitute that sold ourselves out to sin. And we were the sinful one who deserved death and hell and bondage. But the Lord says, but I loved you so much that I gave my only begotten son, that whoever believes in me will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what redemption is. He bought us. He paid the price for us. And what a beautiful work the Lord has done. And, and, and that's one of the things, I think that one of the things that the book of Hosea will do for you and for me as we study it is we're gonna kind of get a sense of how much the Lord loves us. You might be tempted to think, "Brett, I'm sure he loves you, but I don't know all the bad things I've done. Well, you gotta understand we're all sinners. We're all wretched, miserable sinners, all of us. But the Lord just still, he loves you so much that while we were yet sinners, the Bible says, Christ died for us. While we were in the middle of our sin, the Lord hung on the cross knowing every sin that you would ever do. But he still said, but I still love that person. And I don't know how far away you've gone. Are you on the auction block at this point of your life where you're kind of at a place of worthlessness in your own mind? Well, as it turns out, the Lord says, you might think that about yourself, but I love you enough to still send my son and die on the cross for your sins. That's called the gospel. It's the good news. You don't have to be a slave to sin. You don't have to be a wretched, miserable sinner. Christ comes and washes you clean. How does he wash you? Well, the Bible says that it's his precious blood that cleanses us. No longer do they have bulls, rams, and goats, but it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all of our sins. And I'd like to end today's service with us acknowledging and doing what Jesus told us to do about this. He said, I want you to eat and drink of the Lord's table, the bread and the cup in, in remembrance of me. Some of you came from traditional churches that say you have to do it in a certain way or if you have to be baptized in a certain church, can I just say, show me in the Bible where that says anything like that. That's just stupid things people make up. What communion is, Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, which we eat food and drink all the time, um, do this and show the Lord's death, his body, his burial, and his resurrection, you're showing this until he comes back. And the act of communion, um, some people have so uh, formalized it um, that you, you almost don't even feel like you're worthy to take communion. The point is you're not worthy. It's like a person with cancer saying, well, I'll go to the oncologist and get the treatment if I can get the cancer out first. I'll get the cancer out so that I can go. No, the reason we go to communion is because we're Gomer. We're the sinful, wretched, miserable sinner. Yeah, but if the Bible says you have to eat and drink worthily, 1 Corinthians tells us, well, the idea is if, if you had to be worthy to take communion, can I ask the question, who's worthy? None of us are worthy if that's what you think it means. We're so unworthy, it's not even funny. But the point when it says eat and drink, giving worth is the idea, giving value, realizing that when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're actually acknowledging that Jesus's blood was powerful enough to save a wretched, miserable sinner like me and like you. And So you can eat and drink of the Lord. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're not a Christian, you should pass on this or better yet, you should accept Christ and be saved. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and that he rose up from the grave, it says, you will be saved. You don't have to join a church or become a member or do any of that stuff. That stuff may or may not have its place in time, but but what is important is you gotta be born again and saved, you're born in sin. And the Lord says, I want you to be born again into new life, forgiven of all your sins. And if you're one of those people, man, just confess your faith, repent of your sin. That means change your mind and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. See, Gomer, she kept going back to her prostitution. That's not repentance. But after the final buying off the slave market, I think Gomer is gonna be the one that says, no more. That's what repentance is, changing your mind about your path that you've been on and saying, I wanna be saved. So you acknowledge your sin before God, that's repentance. And you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Romans 10, verse nine and 10 says, confess that you believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave and forgives you for your sins. You'll be saved. And so Lord, how great you are to love us that much, to forgive us of our sins. And Lord, we go our way with joy in our hearts, knowing that you love us and you've bought us back. Now I pray, Lord, that you'd put within us a new hunger and a thirst after righteousness that we'd walk with you and stay with you and not be easily lured into Satan's devices, but that we'd hunger and thirst for righteousness. So bless your church. Help us to be salt and light in these dark days, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.